The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. This is Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hardell. Toronto's News, today's talk, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the show, my friends. So about money each and every Saturday night. It's a delight to spend the next hour with you. It really is an exciting world, exciting times. Great article uh, I picked up in the Globe and Mail this week on quantum computing, a uh, company based right here in Canada, uh, earth-shattering power behind its new computing uh, system that is created, uh, Quattrack, I think is the name of the company. Um, kudos to Canada. Uh, let's see what comes of it, and hopefully something big indeed. And, of course, as the world goes 5G and uh, electric and digitized, um, Mother Earth requires uh, so much of the input to make all of that happen. Uh, Kayla Chappelle, uh, she is an analyst with Canaccord, uh, specializing in the minerals and metals industry. And prior to joining our company, she actually worked in the audit and assurance group at Pricewaterhouse primarily covering uh, metals and mining. Uh, Katie is a chartered professional accountant, and she holds a Bachelor of Commerce major in accounting from McGill. Uh, Katie, thanks for coming back on the show. Of course, um, lithium is a key component in in electrification, and uh, you and I have been spending some time talking about that sector indeed. Uh, It's been a tough go this year, I shall say, for the lithium market. Uh, It was uh, front and center last year, and of course, each and every January, the themes tend to change. I have to open up with, uh, I'm seeing a bit of support right now in the lithium market, but it's under some pressure this year, uh, uh, underperforming the TSX composite. Do you think a bit of a bottom in the overall lithium space has been reached and that uh, a next leg higher is in front of us? Or are you more in that Goldman Sachs camp where they think that the market could, in fact, be oversupplied and lithium prices are set to uh, collapse? Yeah, great question, and and thanks for having me on again, guys. Um, This is a very topical time to be talking about lithium, because as you alluded to, Goldman Sachs came out with a report um, earlier this week stating that um, the bull market for battery metals, including lithium, was looking like it was over. Um, I think we sit in a bit of a different camp, and and obviously the equities are starting to to outperform again after having a couple days of of, uh, bad performance there. And, And I would say that there's Weakness was driven by two things. One, there were some reports out of Argentina that the government was going to introduce a new reference price for lithium exports. I don't think that was really what was driving the weakness in the equities, though. We really do think it was a bearish report that we saw out of Goldman. Um, we also saw another one out of Credit Suisse um, that were reporting on, on prices for key battery metals dropping over the next few years. A lot of this being driven by oversupply as investors uh, piled into the industry over the last few years, incentivizing some new supply to come online. I would say that our view is we are seeing a pullback in prices. We're not surprised by that. I would agree that many across the street are in line with that assumption. Pricing is incredibly high right now. In recent months, we kind of view that as counterproductive and not necessarily sustainable. But on the actual supply side, the market is still incredibly, incredibly tight, and we completely disagree. We we would argue that um, the market remains undersupplied right now and will for the next few years. The main difference is that we're seeing um, on a supply basis versus some of the reports we've seen out of some of our peers is um, 
we see some difficulties to some of the supply coming online. There's some capacity expansions out of the major. There's some new projects coming online in Argentina. Uh, the lithium market historically takes a lot longer to deliver these projects on time um, than most expect. And, and a lot of the supply assumptions coming out of the Goldman Report were coming out of some Chinese lipidolite deposits as well as some brines in China. Um, these deposits tend to be lower grade. They have higher impurity levels. They're a lot more difficult to process, and they tend to be more expensive to process. So I would say some of the targets for the production coming online, especially over the next few years, were overly optimistic. Um, so overall, I think the market's going to remain really tight, and that supports higher pricing in the medium term. But over time, it, pricing will pull back a bit. But that's healthy. Pricing's been unsustainable. We're in an extremely, extremely tight market for lithium because demand is so high right now. Um, in, in, in creating uh, an electric world, um, can, can you prioritize uh, the components that are, are required to make it happen? Again, uh, key components from Mother Earth to, to, to electrify the, uh, the universe. Uh, top three uh, attributes uh, to make it work. Um, I think it's not only just having the, the key materials. You need the actual base supply, so like... If you're looking at the battery, you need lithium, you need nickel, you need cobalt, you need manganese, you need copper. Um, those are all going to be really key critical components in terms of the electrification trend working. I think the biggest risk that we're seeing with this trend of electrification is actually getting those raw materials and getting them to market in the time that they're required. Um, specifically speaking to my space, because we, we focus on uh, battery metals and lithium mainly, um, there are some very optimistic electric vehicle targets that we're seeing large automakers put out into the market. Um, we look at the supply side on a day-to-day -day basis, and we're very uncertain about the ability for the supply to ramp up and actually achieve those targets. So we are starting to see a lot of the auto OEMs put more work into understanding where the supply is coming from. You're seeing Tesla come out and Elon state that we might have to buy a lithium mine because they are not worried about the critical minerals actually being there to support electrification as a greater trend. Yeah, a study that I, I saw was to hit the targets that we want to hit, we need to produce seven times the amount of batteries that we are currently producing. And, and that just seems, in, in, in the near term, unsustainable or undoable. Yeah, it, you're going to need a lot of investment. And it's funny because a lot of um, the critical minerals in the supply, the market was really bad for a couple of years. So 2018 through mid-2020, there was a massive lack of investment in these three key critical minerals that we're needing for electrification. So now that we're starting to see a recovery in pricing because supply was so short, we are starting to see more investment in the space. The bigger risk right now is around actually getting the timelines of those projects into production on time. It's not just the development timeline, but it, you're dealing with issues like permitting. Some of these projects aren't permitted yet. Um, not in my backyard issues, especially in places like the U.S. So, so having community support is obviously really important to push these projects forward. Uh, in this environment, you're seeing rising costs, the rising capital intensity, so actually funding those projects. And I would say as a whole, the industry, um, it, it's tight for labor. So making sure you have the right engineers, the people there to actually build the projects and advance them on time. Katie, uh, let's uh, continue on the, your space of, of metals and minerals. Um, Jack uh, was tweaked, uh, his interest this week, uh, about the concept of rare earth. Um, so uh, this is a two-pronged question I have for you. Uh, number one, what can you teach us about rare earth minerals in terms of uh, supply? Because I understand China is a, is a key producer of rare earths. Uh, how rare are rare earths? 
uh, if, if you can. And, and are they a component as well in the electrification of the world? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. So, so rare earth, uh, just sort of as an overview, it's a general term to describe uh, 17 metals that comprise the, the, essentially the lanthanide series of elements. Uh, the term rare earths, I would say, is a bit of an accurate term in the sense that rare earths are actually really abundant in the Earth's crust. Um, the term is more attributable to their rare occurrence in economic concentration. Um, they're going to be extremely, extremely important going forward. Uh, rare earths have a number of unique properties that make them critical to a lot of applications, including small electronics, um, clean energy in particular. So, so if you're looking at uh, wind turbines, automotive, so electric vehicles, you need rare earths. Uh, and then also defense equipment as well. So if you're looking at military equipment, radars, sonar systems, those all include rare earths. What's really unique um, about rare earths, or, or maybe a little bit frightening, is the fact that the market is incredibly, incredibly dominated um, by China. So China produces about 80% of total rare earth oxide supply and about 100% of heavy separated rare earths. Outside of that, the next largest producers are Australia and the U.S., um, some small production out of both of those countries. But global supply concentration, um, I would say, is a bit concerning. That's why you're seeing some governments uh, start to recognize the strategic importance of rare earths uh, and, and finding out where they're going to secure their supply going forward. Uh, Jack, I want you to pipe in on this because obviously you've done a bit of homework on rare earths this week. And so please, uh, Kay LaChapelle, our uh, analyst who covers special especially minerals, is here uh, for our uh, educational purposes. <laughs> thanks, Wolf, and thanks, Katie, for, uh, for joining us. Um, just, just looking at the, the Canadian opportunity here, you say, you know, rare earths aren't that rare, uh, and you say, you know, some of the, the permitting is, is some of the biggest issues that you have around uh, being able to, I guess, uh, take, these out of, uh, take these out of the ground um, and then also um, to refine them as well. Uh, do you see that as an opportunity for Canada, considering I would say we have, a, I'm going to say, a similar landscape, and we, get, we also have a lot of uh, metals mining material up here in the north? And then uh, the other part of that is, are you starting to see um, international money uh, flowing towards Canada in this space, whether it's through rare earths or traditional metals mining materials? Um, I would say rare earths, we're not quite there yet. There, there's a couple development projects that are in Canada, so some interesting opportunities in BC. One that I can think of off the top of my mind is, is a company called Defense Metals. Um, the issue with rare earths right now is we don't have any separation capabilities that are in North America, um, but there are some projects that are that are starting to advance, and, and there's a company called Energy Fuels in the U.S. who is looking to actually um, process some monazite ore to actually get out rare earths. The issue there is a lot of these rare earth deposits tend to be um, high in radioactive materials, so thank uranium, thorium, so making sure you have the proper licenses to be able to actually process that material. Um, so I think it's, it's, there's a leg up in it coming there. It's listed on the critical minerals. We're seeing some support out of Canada and the United States. Um, I would say in terms of actual concrete support, we're starting to see more in terms of EVs. So, so if we look at something like electric vehicles, in Ontario specifically, in Quebec, we've seen Stellantis come out and put $3.6 billion. The government's working with them on that. We've got Honda Canada, who's going to upgrade its Ontario manufacturing plant for hybrid electric vehicles. Uh, you've got Stellantis and LG Energy coming in, investing over $5 billion to build a large-scale lithium-ion plant in Canada. So you're starting to see a really big push in terms of lithium and electric vehicles and government support backing those, but we haven't really seen it yet on the rarer side. 
This is iFi Radio. Each and every oops, sorry, Katie. iFi Radio. Each and every Saturday night, we continue to broadcast remotely, remaining COVID uh, secure, shall I say? Uh, Katie Chappelle, uh, one of our analysts, uh, delighted to have her on the show. She focuses on the specialty minerals and metals industry. It really is all about electrification, the ways of the future, my good friends. Indeed, lots of runway in front of us. Uh, let's see how we can't make some money uh, around the space. We're going to take a quick break, get right back to Kate LeChapelle, Jack Hartle, and, of course, myself, Wolfgang Klein, Portfolio Manager. Any questions for Jack or I, WolfgangKlein.com. We'll be back to you in two minutes. Stay tuned. Let's take a break. Wolf and Jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio on 640 Toronto. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. Electronic, I guess, in its early days. Electric Light Orchestra, ELO. They were a huge fan. Uh, they're okay, okay, but uh, you know, had to cue up the right tune for our guest, Katie LaChapelle. She's an analyst uh, with Canaccord. She specializes in minerals and metals, and we're talking about electrification. Uh, indeed, uh, Elon Musk, we've got to give him full credit. He really did uh, take uh, the electric vehicle forward. It's not a new concept. It was just never adopted. And he, uh, well, uh, created the adoption phase and uh, good on him. Uh, and of course, Canada can certainly participate in the space in many different manners, including manufacturing of actual vehicles, battery manufacturing, and taking out key components of, well, uh, the Canadian Shield uh, to put into those batteries. We're talking about rare earth minerals. Uh, Katie educated us that there's 17 rare earth. Uh, pop quiz for you, Katie. Uh, of those 17 rare earth minerals, uh, how many of those exist in Canada? So usually when you mine a rare earth deposit, it has a percentage of all of the um, components. So, you, so you'll basically oh. process it, create sort of a concentrate or a carbonate, and that will have percentages of small, like it'll have lanthanum, cerium. NDPR, and then you'll actually separate that out. Right. They tend and to be hosted, again, hosted together. It, 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 from what I understand about rare earths, the reason China has a dominant position, again, I want to pivot to Russia and Ukraine as well, about their uh, play in all of this, but uh, I do understand uh, 101 uh, textbook stuff about rare earth mining. It is very unfriendly to Mother Nature, and uh, restrictions or requirements in China are a lot more uh, loosey, uh, goosey than they are up here in Canada. Uh, is that true? Is, is it you know pretty uh, heavy on Mother Mother uh, Earth in, in terms of the extraction and, and, and separation of the seventeen components? Yeah, that is true. Uh, depends on the type of deposit. So in China, I guess one of the benefits they have in the rare space is they have a lot of ionic clays, so ion absorption clays. Um, these are rare earths that are essentially have been absorbed onto clay surfaces. They tend to have high concentrations of heavy rare earths, which tend to be higher value. 
Um, it's mostly in southern China and Myanmar. The main issue with these deposits, though, is that they're often mined using environmentally unsound leaching processes. So it leaves ammonium in, in water systems, leaching solutions not necessarily contained. So from an environmental perspective, um, there are definitely some concerns uh, around the processing methods of those clays. That would never be allowed in a place like North America. Uh, yeah, no, we, we've had a few disasters with, uh, with, with leaching systems going awry. Uh, Toxic Bob is a name that seems to come to my mind when I think of a massive leak uh, that went south. I'm, I'm sure, Katie, you know who I'm referring to. Um, uh, Jack brings up a very important point, again, and a position that we do have on our books is a position in Cameco, uh, a uranium position, of course. Electrification uh, uh, <laughs> requires just that. Electric energy and uh, uranium, obviously, and, and nuclear is... Uh, a key key component to supplying the grid. Uh, China, excuse me, Russia, Ukraine, and uh, uranium. Uh, where does that fit into this whole equation in, in terms of the next five to ten years uh, supply and pricing? We could we could talk about this for hours, but um, Russia, you know, Russia is a major player in global energy markets. Uh, they're the world's largest exporter of gas, third largest producer of oil. Um, I would say with gas becoming a bit of a, a political and economic weapon, it, it seems natural that Europe and elsewhere are seeking to reduce their reliance on Russia. You've seen that come by with a number of sanctions. Um, what I think this does is it leads to more nuclear in the longer-term energy mix. There's a lot of countries within Europe, uh, as well as North America, who are reevaluating their exposure to nuclear. So just even over the course of the last few months, you've seen Belgium come out and extend the lifespan for two of their existing reactors You've seen France commit to building at least six new nuclear reactors in addition to not closing down the ones that they had online. You've got the Biden administration coming out and announcing $6 billion to support nuclear power plants in the United States. Um, so I would say there's a durability in nuclear demand that we haven't seen in a while. You've got a lot of companies making that zero commitment. You've got governments making that zero commitment. And that's really supporting um, nuclear power going forward and obviously demand for uranium as well. Yeah, I was just going to say, just touching on Russia specifically, um, they're a very integral part of the global nuclear fuel market. I think that's something that's really important in the current environment. Right now, they produce about 15% of global supply with their joint ventures they have in Kazakhstan. Um, but what's even more shocking is the fact that they have about a 38% share of global conversion capacity and a 43% share of global enrichment capacity. So what you need to do to get actual uranium from the mine into reactor is you need to mine it into U-308, so yellow cake, and then you have to convert it, and then you have to enrich it. So Russia has a very, very significant portion, about 40% of both conversion and enrichment. So if you cut Russia off, um, there are some serious consequences for, for Western utilities and their ability to secure supply uh, in a sustainable way. Jack? And, and how those, those the supply arrangements that you're talking about from those utilities, how concerned do you think are they right now uh, about that? And is that feeding through into the uh, the spot price and also the, I guess, the futures contracts for uranium? Oh, definitely. Um, in terms of pricing, so so for enrichment, it's called SWU. It is, we'll think of the pricing that way. And then you've got conversion prices. SWU and conversion prices, SWU um, is at an 11-year high. Conversion prices are at an all-time high. We're definitely seeing uh, a shift from utilities who are looking to diversify their supply away from Russia. So what they're doing is they're trying to secure these services, enrichment, conversion, um, and upstream uranium supply as well. 
from Western sources. They're really trying to shift away from Russia. And I would also say that some ex-Soviet countries, uh, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, are somewhat getting included in that as well. So you're starting to see, I guess, the uh, the security uh, premium over uh, just focusing strictly on cost for some of these utilities. From my understanding is the, the, the cost of the actual uh, uranium, whether it's enriched or not, I guess, uh, is relatively small for the, the utility companies. And it really doesn't make that much of a difference because it's such an integral part of uh, um, the energy production from the, from the utilities and the reactors. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. It's, it's a very small proportion of, of the overall cost. It's not really that utilities um, don't want to pay a lot for uranium. It's more they just don't want to pay more than the other guy down the street paying for it. Um, so generally when there are security of supply concerns in uranium, you see the utilities come and come in force to actually secure pounds. So we refer to that as a long-term contracting cycle. Um, we haven't seen one of those in nearly a decade. Um, I would say that we're in a position right now where we're starting to see a shift in long-term contracting. In the first quarter of, of this year alone, there was over 55 million pounds that were signed under long-term contract by utilities. That compares to a total contracted volume of about 72 million pounds from last year. Um, it also represents the highest level of term contracting for one single quarter dating back to 2012. So, so I would say that we're starting to see a shift, an increase in long-term contracts, and we're starting to see them also find at higher price levels. So that definitely uh, hints to an improvement in, in uranium, and that's very positive for, for companies such as Chemical, as you mentioned. Yeah, just being a, a safe and secure environment where you can actually source the material. Chem uh, chemical, I believe, is, is the largest outside of Russia um, in, in terms of production. Is it not, Katie? Yeah, in terms of production, um, Chemico would, would be the largest producer. The the other large producer would be Kazatoprom, which is Kazakhstan. Um, Kazakhstan's an ex, ex-Soviet state, obviously borders with Russia, and they actually ship their material through Russia as well. Um, but Cameco is the largest pure play producer um, that's available right now. And the majority of their assets are in Canada and in, in an area called the Athabasca Basin. So they have two of the, the best mines in the world in MacArthur River and Cigar Lake. And they're currently ramping up production again at MacArthur River. Um, so the cash flows they're going to see from that mine in, in this environment where, where prices are rising uh, will, be, will be really positive for the company. It's also important to note, just because we did touch on enrichment and conversion, Cameco owns the only operating conversion facility in North America. Yeah. The, the, other, the other question I have is, anytime you talk about uh, uranium reactors, uh, you have to put safety into the conversation, I think, um, just with what we saw, Fukushima and Chernobyl. And just earlier this year, there was concerns around uh, a Ukrainian reactor um, getting, I guess, I don't know if it was bombed or if it was potentially uh, damaged because of the Russian attack. Um, the, the new technology that's coming into your, uh, the uranium space and the reactor space, can, can you maybe speak to that? Because uh, new stuff coming on supply, or new reactors coming on uh, supply, whether it's in, in uh, France or China, um, what is the new technology that they're using and, and how safe is it? Yeah, technology... Um has improved a bit. I would say it's more the regulatory process and licensing, the safety of these reactors and safety systems built into them. That was all reevaluated after Fukushima. So, for example, if you look at a country like Japan, they took the reactors offline as a response. There was other, other countries globally who did that as well. Um, and they went through safety reviews. And, and there's a lot more regulation now in terms of nuclear reactors. So I would say that it's improved dramatically. Um, just because you did 
point to the Ukraine nuclear power plant accident. Um, that's obviously not great to have a, a country like Russia, who is such an important part of the nuclear fuel cycle, um, attacking a nuclear plant in Ukraine. Uh, Katie, uh, can, you, can you give us a couple of uh, stock picks, both uh, you know, and preferably large-cap names that uh, are, are longer-term investments uh, in your uh, space right here right now? Yeah, definitely. We spoke on Cameco. I think Cameco is really well-positioned. Um, right now, just with MacArthur River ramping up, you're going to see some significant cash flows coming out of that asset over the course of the next uh, year to two years. They also have conversion leverage to that, which is at all-time highs. And they're backing up their contract books. They're signing new long-term contracts. They were in a really good negotiating position with utilities to sign contracts at favorable ter- terms, just given the demand for, for Western production um, currently right now. So I continue to like Cameco uh, for the uranium space. If you're looking for advanced-age developers in uranium, next-gen energy is an absolute standout. It's arguably the world's best undeveloped deposit globally. Uh, it's in Canada. Great, great asset. will probably be online end of this decade. It's going to free cash over $1.3 billion per year. So I, I can't ignore that one. Um, in the lithium space, if we're looking at Canada specifically, uh, there's a new company, not newer, but but more well-known now called Frontier Lithium. They have an incredible spodumene deposit in northern Ontario. It's about 42 million tons at 1.55% lithium oxide. Um, that makes it the second largest and the highest grade in North America. This project's only going to get bigger, uh, and I would say there's going to be a lot of growth happening there this year. The drills are turning. You'll start to see some results out of that at uh, that year end. Key LaChapelle, uh, key analyst at Canaccord. Uh, specializing in uh, minerals and metals, a great partner that uh, the Wolf on Bay Street team has available. Uh, very powerful stuff. We are moving forward with electrification. And, uh, well, it's good to uh, participate uh, in the space. Uh, I want to wish you a great weekend, Katie. Thank you very kindly for spending some time uh, with us. Uh, we're going to stick with uh, Canaccord analyst uh, Derek DeLay, consumer products specialist, uh, head of research as well uh, with the company, uh, joining us right after the break. break. <laughs> Friends, stay tuned. It is Hi-Fi Radio, 640 Toronto. Don't go anywhere. There's more Hi-Fi Radio in a moment on 640 Toronto. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. favorite clash songs ever indeed bank robber um you know so many canadians feel like they're being robbed by their banks <laughs> and i said to them over and over again my friends if you can't beat them join them what do i mean yeah buy some bank stock own it hold it clip your dividend um you know ironically i've been in, in this business now for 21 years and and watching uh the canadian bank stocks and the u.s banks as well but start with the Canadian bank stocks. They seem to trade at a very tight uh, price-earnings ratio, uh, usually in and around 10 to 12, um, uh, which is quite remarkable because, uh, as far as I've always seen, that's been pretty darn good value, uh, whereby the Canadian banks pay you a 4% dividend. The dividend seems to be increased every second, every third quarter. So 
once or twice a year they raise their dividend. And the, the trend just seems to continue. Um, fantastic compounders of wealth they've been over the last multiple decades. Um, but every now and then, uh, people get shaken out of their bank positions for various reasons. Uh, and recently, of course, the rise in interest rates and the, kind of on, the, on the heels of rise in inflation has certainly shaken the tree. Plus, the rise in interest rates comes perhaps some uh, questionable mortgages and loans, which, of course, would sit on Canadian bank balance sheets, which pushes the banks down. But, uh, you know, I, Jack and I wholeheartedly agree that trying to time Canadian banks is not necessarily an easy thing to do uh, for the tend to uh, over time just work. Uh, Scott Chan, uh, he's our key financial analyst uh, with Can, of course. Sorry, I said Derek Lay was going to join us. Uh, that is next week. He's the head of our uh, consumer products division. Uh, Scott Chan, an analyst with Canaccord as well. Uh, he focuses on the banks and the financials. Uh, Scott, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us. Um, I will uh, confess, I, I have been shaken out of my U.S. banks. Uh, I sold J.P. Morgan. I sold Goldman. I sold Bank of America. I sold Citigroup about, I don't know, three, four weeks ago. Uh, so far, so good. The stocks uh, did go lower. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, after selling positions, I said, why do I sell those positions? I had to justify my, my exit strategy. Uh, for, for those names, too, have been pretty darn good compounders. Uh, and again, coming out of the financial crises, uh, they've been quite challenged. Um, so uh, please, where do you think we are in the banking cycle? And, and from an investment point of view, um, what would you recommend to your institutional clients in terms of a, a, a waiting uh, to have uh, in, in the financials? Yeah, thanks for having me again. Um, yeah, no, the Canadian banks are, are, you know, are a good place uh, to be over the long term. And as you mentioned, it's really hard to ascertain buy and sell points. And, and to your point on U.S. banks, that was that was a fantastic sell. Um, and even the Canadian banks, after a strong fiscal Q1, I mean, they just reported fiscal Q2, but fiscal Q2, Q1 was really, really good results. And then we saw all the macro concerns that were happening, and the banks capitulated, including the Canadian banks, down 10 to 15% heading into fiscal Q2. Uh, and last week, results were very good as well, uh, like high quality, uh, you know, big earnings beats. And the outlook, surprisingly, was, was pretty constructive, especially in Canada. And you talked about valuation, and they do trade in that tight 10 to 12 times key forward range. And right now, they trade slightly below that. Uh, and it's mostly due to macro concerns uh, that you suggested, like inflation, uh, interest rates, and potential credit down the road. But credit right now continues to be pristine on both sides of the border, but that can change pretty quickly. We don't expect that to change over the next two quarters or this year, but 2023, that's something to think about for sure. In terms of... Uh, you know, the, the, the picks right now that we, uh, that we favor um, and, and talking to institutional clients, um, our topic would be BNS. Like BNS is more of a, a counterintuitive play in this market. Uh, you know, they're the Canadian bank that's got that big international arm, uh, mostly in LATAM. That differentiates them from the other big five banks. But the international segment continues to gain momentum, similar to what we saw uh, in Canada and the U.S. with the other banks. COVID kind of hit them later, so they're kind of got that better momentum, and you kind of saw that in, the, in, in this quarter's results, too. We expect that uh, to continue. Uh, in terms of number two, be CIBC. Uh, CIBC is um, the, the more Canadian-concentrated bank uh, relative to the other 
big five. And uh, as I mentioned before, the Canadian uh, economics and, and economy seem to be slightly better than the U.S. marketplace. And it pays a pure high dividend yield of about 5%, similar to BNS. Uh, and then lastly uh, is BMO. You know, BMO's been one of our top picks during the pandemic. Uh, they've got tough comps. Um, they're more centered in the U.S. They made a pretty big acquisition uh, down there in December. Uh, you know, all things look like it's going well. Uh, and they did provide some good revenue synergies in fiscal Q2, um, you know, coming, uh, you know, upon close. So, um, you know, BMO, BMO is, um, you know, would be our third pick. It's, it's kind of moved down the pecking order only because it's been the best performing bank during the pandemic. So, Scott, can you maybe speak to, um, I, I think everyone, all Canadians right now, Bank of Canada raised rates uh, half a percent just this week. They're expected to raise, I think, another half a percent in, I guess, July. Um, how does rising interest rates uh, affect the bank earnings? Because obviously there's potential for stress in the system and uh, loan losses, especially if we get into a recession uh, on one side of the scale. But the other side of the scale, they actually uh, can generate you know, higher uh, net interest margins. So basically earning money on the money that they have on their balance sheet. So can you maybe speak to that and how, how you view it either positively or negatively for earnings going forward? Yeah, so, so generally it's, it's a net positive. Um, maybe the pace that is expected uh, might might kind of temper uh, our thoughts there. But rising rates that we're seeing right now and expected to persist into next year is, is positive for the margin immediately, right, depending on the books. Um, and, and that will impact the P&L, and, and you'll kind of see that. And you see, you've been seeing that over the past couple quarters as the Bank of Canada and the U.S. Fed have been raising rates. On the other side of the equation, uh, rising rates do temper growth. Uh, growth is coming from a very robust standpoint right now on both sides of the border. Uh, I think there's a lot of pent-up demand. Uh, mortgages are slowing in Canada. We all know that. Uh, but other areas like commercial and credit cards are, are picking up. And the last thing to think about is credit. And credit's great so far. It's pristine. Uh, but rising rates and the ability to pay back loans like mortgages could be impacted next year, especially if we hit a recession. Right. So, so rising rates, net good, um, good for profits. The, the other side of the scale then, too, is uh, financials tax. Is that something that, that investors are asking you about or talking to you about? Because the, uh, the news of that or expectation for, you know, large financial institutions that are going to say, from the government's perspective, pay their fair share. Is, is that a concern for the market? Um, it, it's not really a concern. Um, it is. Uh, it will likely increase the corporate tax rate for uh, the big six banks and select life codes next year. It's not material. Uh, you know, we're talking uh, less than a percent to maybe two percent. Uh, there's probably some offsets that the banks can can do at this point, but nothing is set in stone. The banks are against it, but um, you know they have the excess capital and the capital to uh, to certainly. Uh, um, to certainly support the uh, the higher proposed tax. I just wanted to point out the dividends that you talked about because now they start resuming the dividends. Uh, it is every other quarter, um, and we expect that going forward, similar to pre-pandemic. World Bank increased their dividend by 7%, national 6%, uh, higher than what we expected. The other banks were mid-single digits. Uh, and TD was the only one that didn't increase their dividend, and I think it's because of the large acquisition that they have to digest at the end of the year, but uh, we would expect dividends every other quarter. It's coming in a bit higher than expected. KO ratios in terms of the medium term 
um, uh, payout range or at the low end based on our estimates. So dividends are safe and are growing in this marketplace. Scott, we're going to take a quick break. I want to come back to uh, Manulife. It's another position we do have on our books. And again, I want you to, to dig a little bit deeper into that company, the pros and cons of it. Because this looks awful cheap to me, but uh, I just don't want to be sitting inside a value trap. Uh, quick break. Get right back to Hi-Fi Radio 640 in Toronto. Want to make more money? Stay tuned for more Hi-Fi Radio on 640 Toronto. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. Welcome back, my friends. What the show's all about. We're speaking with our bank analyst, Scott Chan, with Canaccord. Uh, we were speaking about the banks earlier. I want to drill a little bit deeper into uh, the Canadian life codes, uh, Sun Life, Manulife. Um, Sun Life has done quite well uh, coming out of the pandemic and consistently seems to be uh, putting numbers up on the board. But Manulife has been absolutely stuck in the mud for almost 10 years. It's yeah. very, very cheap. It has a very big dividend on it, but it continues to be mired in some some historic uh, insurance deals it put it put through that uh, uh, caused the company to get into some trouble. And then it had to get hyper defensive with its book of business, which of course is now affecting its uh, growth trajectory. Uh, speak to the company uh, if you don't mind, Scott Manulife, and tell me you know, where do we sit as an investor uh, at these levels. Yeah, so so cautious near term. We actually did downgrade uh, Manulife to a hold um, after the recent Q1 results, um, and it's more of a near term call. Uh, over sixty percent of Manulife's earnings come from Asia and asset management. Um, and as you know, Asia, with the lockdowns and continued lockdowns, I know select regions are opening up, uh, is really impacting sales and profitability there. Uh, and then in terms of asset management, uh, with markets declining and flows turning the other way, you have two of its biggest segments have near-term headwinds. And then you kind of t- and then you kind of layer on IRFRS 17, which is that new accounting regime change, would have more material impact on manual life. So we're still trying to digest um, all those things um, and, and kind of balance that with the valuation it trades at, because historically it has traded low buck it currently does that right now but profitability is getting impacted near term uh hence our cautious view it does trade or or yield a dividend of over five percent they've got a five percent buyback they've been more aggressive they've got a lot of excess capital so i would just kind of pause on manual life till their next quarter and i think you'll get a better deal after that on that name what kind of downside risk do you see with the stock well, I can see it. Um, I, I can see it going to twenty bucks um, and below. Um, you know, things that would have to happen on that would be markets declining uh, in the back half of the year, which which wouldn't be good for any financials. But Manulife's got uh, a higher proportion of uh, of market sensitivity uh, on those assets. And then Asia, like how 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 quickly does Asia recover, right? And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the big question there. How fast can they rejuvenate sales uh, in that marketplace and, and gain better traction? Asia, before the pandemic, for both Manulife and Sunlife, were great businesses. Asia is very underpenetrated 
and insurance products, and they both have vaulted asset management arms there, and both, you know, have a medium-term earnings target of 15% plus within that region, and and both of them were hitting that pre-pandemic. So if we can get better visibility on traction towards double-digit earnings within that segment, um, you know, I think that's going to be a positive lift on, on both those two companies. Uh, what's your uh, favorite idea right now? And again, look at your entire universe, Scott. Um, what, what do you think is the high probable investment uh, at these levels for an individual with a two to five year time frame? Yeah, so I, I would kind of switch over to my other coverage and look at the asset managers or private equity. Uh, for someone with a two to five year time horizon, I would favor CI Financial and Onyx, Onyx being the alternative asset manager. Both companies have been decimated, uh, very high beta when markets are going down. Um, but if the reverse will happen medium term, which which history tells us it will, uh, these companies will snap back a bit further. Uh, in terms of CI, um, you know, they, they've been aggressively acquiring U.S. wealth management businesses in the U.S., and they're looking to spin out that business early next year. I think that's a catalyst. Uh, when you look at Onyx, um, you know, like all these holding companies are trading at a discount to NAV. You know, the 30% plus, um, you know, I think is, is is a bit far-fetched in this market. So there's certainly value there. And the big catalyst on Onyx is that they do manage an asset management or, or an alternative asset management arm uh, with aspirations over the next three, four years to make it a lot more profitable. Uh, and for the rec- and for the market to recognize value over the, over um, you know w- with that segment over time, so uh, those two have the most upside. Um, you know they've been hit pretty hard. Uh, CI pays a, a very attractive dividend yield. Onyx pays a, a smaller one if, if people are looking for dividend while you wait. But I, I would suggest those two companies have a pretty good upside over the next two five years. Scott Chan, financial analyst with Canaccord, spending some time with us, a little fireside chat as to how to invest our money prudently uh, in a very large space. In fact, the financials make up uh, almost 30% of the TSX composite, so it's a sector that you have to pay attention to. I appreciate your time, Scott, as always. Jack Hartle, great job teeing up the guests each and every Saturday night for us here on Hi-Fi Radio. Friends at home, any questions about money, and I mean anything, we can take care of you. Call us. Uh, WolfgangKlein.com is the website. Uh, direct line, 869-7338. Uh, I want to wish you a great weekend, and uh, we will speak to you next Saturday right here on 640 in Toronto. All the best. You've been listening to Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hardhill, Portfolio Managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any questions about money, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. Hi-Fi Radio, for the love of money. Join us again next week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto.